The most common thing that I've heard from people who I'd ask, what do you want to improve in your yoga practice? Or have you thought about being a teacher and what is the biggest obstacle to being a teacher? The most common word that I've heard from everybody is the word confidence. They say maybe I want to build confidence in my yoga practice and then I'll feel able to teach others. Or maybe I want to build confidence in my ability to be in front of a room and talking. But there's some aspect of building confidence that's really important to being a yoga teacher. So I've created a free online training called Three Mindset Shifts to Build Confidence in Teaching Yoga. And you can sign up for that at quietmind.yoga slash confidence. So basically I've put together everything I've learned over my 15 plus years of health and wellness work and about eight years now of teaching yoga and distilled it down to what are the main three things, perspectives to have, the mindsets to have that help you build confidence. I definitely, I remember my first class that I was going to teach, I spent all week thinking about that one class. It seemed like the hardest thing I had done to that point. And, and now I teach several classes a week, up to 15 classes a week some weeks. And uh, I don't think about it as much. So I built that confidence over time. But I definitely remember what it was like to not have that. And I've learned uh, how I built it and sort of reviewed and did some introspection and reflection and I'll share what I learned in this training. So you can check it out at quietmind.yoga slash confidence. My name is Jeremy Devins and welcome to the Yoga Teacher Training Podcast, episode number eight, The Source Texts of Yoga. So this podcast is all about helping you become a better student, practitioner, and by proxy teacher of yoga, right? So it all starts with your own personal practice and research and development. And then that naturally permeates into how you show up for others and what you share with others as a teacher. And I think there's really this sort of three phase process, which I've mentioned in previous episodes, where we are students and we study the fundamentals and then we deepen our practice and we go deeper into those aspects that really resonate and inspire us and interest us. And then we take what we've learned and codify it and make sense of it all and then share it with others. And we maybe go and teach classes or one-on-ones or privates or events, whatever it is that you teach what you've learned and you share it with others so that they can have similar lessons and realizations and their own process. And in this way, I think that we're all just uh, passing on what we've learned. And one of my teachers would say that yoga is caught, not taught. So we can't just read a book and understand everything there is to know about yoga. We really need to learn from somebody who has experienced and practiced these things and uh, there's a sort of transmission that happens. So just reading these texts about yoga is very helpful but even more so it helps to have some sort of student-teacher relationship, some sort of apprenticeship. And as I've mentioned in another previous episode, it's one of the core competencies of teaching yoga that you have somebody that you're in a relationship with that you're learning from so that they can make sense of this stuff. Because if you just go and pick up the Yoga Sutra, which I've tried many times in the past to just, okay, it's only 196 aphorisms. It's a short little book. I can read this thing in about an hour. Get like five sutra in and I'm just like, uh. <laughs> so it's so dense, right? And they're meant to be dense and they're meant to be distilled and disseminated by a teacher who understands them. And that's why there's so many commentaries on the Yoga Sutra in particular in the Bhagavad Gita and you know so this is why it helps to have a teacher who is 
understood these things and they can disseminate it for you. So just reading the text is great. Even better, I'd say, would be to just read one sutra and live with that for a while. It could be months, weeks, years even of just like processing. Yoga is chitta, vritti, narodaha, right? Just processing that yoga is the stilling of the mind and understanding that and seeing that play out in so many ways. And in my understanding of how this was traditionally taught is that you would recite one mantra, you would learn one yoga sutra and you would repeat it and practice it and study it and live with it until you've ingrained it. Then you move on to the next sutra, right? So it could take you a lifetime to get through just parts of the Yoga Sutra. Similar with the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, which I'll talk about as well, right? So these are the source texts of yoga. So what do I mean by that? Well, one of my teachers, and this I hadn't really thought about this until you know, it was early on in my training, uh, I brought up this idea of this uh, certain school I was considering checking out, these certain, uh, certain discipline meditation practice. And I brought it up to one of my teachers who I trusted and knew well. What do you think about this? And the first thing she said was, what, where, where are the source texts? Like, where does this come from? What's the roots of this? And it got me thinking about like, yeah, that is a good question. What are the roots of the stuff we're practicing? Like, why do we do ujjayi breath? Or why do we do sun salutations? Where does it come from? Was it all just made up 100 years ago? It's all debatable, right? <laughs> there's, there's people uh, who, who say that is the case. But there is a lot of evidence in recent years that many of the asana and uh, meditative aspects especially go way further back than 100 years. But the sun salutations are likely are a more recent thing. But this is where we start to get in this sort of cloudy area of like, what is yoga and what is just uh, appropriation? What is just adding on different cultural pieces? So I think it's helpful to go all the way back to what are the source texts? Where does this stuff come from at, the, at its roots? And you can't go any further than the Vedas. The Vedas, the Veda means wisdom. And it came from the Rishis, the seers, who essentially dedicated their entire life to sitting and listening and meditating and seeing. This is Rishi, the seer. And to see what is true, to know what is true, to hear the truth. What is shruti, or received wisdom? So they sat in meditation, and what they received was passed down orally through mantras. And the level of detail in these mantras is incredible, right? So it's very specific and very detailed. And in that way, they would say that it's more reliable source of information because there's a sort of nod or rhythm or cadence to the, the mantra to this received wisdom. It's not just somebody wrote it down and passed it on. And they actually believe that if you write things down and pass it on, that it's easier to distort information and it's a less reliable source. It's called smirti or what is remembered. So there are two sources of shruti wisdom, which are the Vedas and the Upanishads. So the Vedas are to know to understand and there's a little tiny bit of mention of yoga in there but it's really more about yoking horses to carriages there is a little mention of the mind and i discussed this in a previous episode how really it's the upanishads where we get our first definition of what yoga is and this is why i consider the vedas are essential in understanding hinduism and indian belief and thought 
but they're not essential to yoga, so I would not consider them a source text of yoga in the same way I'd say the Upanishads are. So Vedas somewhere around maybe 1750 BCE. Some people say as far back as 15,000 BCE. Some people say more like 600 BCE. But it's definitely somewhere uh, in that range, most likely around 1750 is what's the kind of consensus at this point from what I've researched. So the Vedas, this received wisdom, and then the Upanishads came. So this is again this idea of teachers distilling and disseminating this information to students. This is what Upanishad means, to sit near. And it implies sitting near a teacher who's sharing and disseminating this wisdom for you. And it created what is called Vedanta philosophy. Veda, the wisdom, Anta, the end. So the end of the Vedas. The Upanishads are considered Vedantic philosophy, the end of wisdom. And that implies not just the end of these texts, but the end of seeking wisdom. So it's like all wisdom, all roads lead to Vedanta, is the idea of the philosophy. Of course, their philosophy would have it ingrained that theirs is the best philosophy, as all paths do. <laughs> but it's right there in the title. So I guess maybe that's a little arrogant. But in my experience, in my research, I mean, this stuff just resonates. I mean, it's why I teach it and share it and practice it. It feels true to me. I've explored a lot of paths and gone down a lot of different uh, paths and meditations, practices, and spiritual communities. And uh, nothing quite resonates and feels true and real and natural as the Vedantic teachings, which are really the source and foundation of everything we do in yoga. So I go way more in depth in what all that implies and the implications of that in my yoga teacher training program and how the Kata Upanishads and the, and the Mandukya Upanishads, specifically there's parts about yoga in there. You can get this if you just get any translation of the Upanishads, you'll, you'll learn some of these things and you'll see how uh, yoga is taught in there. And there's some definitions of yoga and the benefits of yoga and how to practice yoga. It's not quite fleshed out like we know it today. It's definitely not about vinyasa yoga or anything like that. But there is that, uh, that root of it, which is essentially what I described in a previous episode uh, about becoming less pulled and pushed by the, the opposites, the pairs of opposites of good and bad, up and down, high and low that you find this sort of center in yourself that is unshakable and it's the Atman, the true self and it's connected and part of the Brahman it's like a drop in the ocean right, so the Upanishads flesh all that out and it's all about the mindset, the philosophy, the beliefs, the practices uh, not so much like the physical how-to but more of the why and the what and uh, explaining you know, what yoga is really all about but it's, it took later, later, all the way up to the last text I'll talk about uh, to really flesh out the practices and the how-to of this. At that point, more of the practices were like bhakti yoga or dharma yoga, where you just live in devotion. And everything you do is meant to be an act of devotion to Brahma, to Source, to God, whatever you call it. And... Uh, it wasn't so much in like the practices like we know of yoga today. So if you want to understand where it all came from, uh, you can't go any further back than the Upanishads unless we discover something else in the future that we don't know about today. 
but that's it. That's the the first real definition of the the chakras, the kundalini, the nadis, prana, uh, mantra, jnana yoga, wisdom, uh, just actual raja yoga, which combined all these things, meditation. It's all in there in the Upanishads, and. You can get, there's lots of translations. Eknath Esrans is great. The one I really like actually came out recently. It's by Tom Perkins and Thomas Egenis. I think I'm saying that right. It's called The Upanishads, A New Translation. Uh, the audio of it is awesome. If you have Scribd, you can get it on there. It's included in the membership. Or you can get the audiobook or Audible, whatever. It's an awesome audiobook. I like to learn through audio and listening. I mean, I'm making a podcast. I love this format of learning. So if you do too, check out the Upanishads, a new translation. I'll have a link in the show notes so you can check it out. Or you can get the book if you like the paper book or the Kindle. Uh, either way, it's great. Succinct, summarizes everything really well. And it's a great uh, introduction to it all. So again, I tried to go and <laughs> I did my first teacher training around eight years ago. I tried to go and just, okay, I'm just going to read this book. It sounds important. Uh, let's let's go for it. And then uh, I just got in over my head really fast. And this is the translation that if I would have heard this, then it would have made a lot more sense. So if you're a beginner or if you just want a nice summary of it, I like I really uh, like and recommend this translation. So shortly thereafter, the Upanishads, uh, there's 108 that are considered canonical, but there's at least 200 plus out there. And there's actually still Upanishads written in recent times, but uh, there's really only, it's, there's somewhere around the 13, it's debatable exactly how many that are considered essential. And uh, those are addressed, and, and those were all somewhere around 700 BCE, maybe up to 200 BCE. So giving you the timeline here, which again, I lay this out in much more detail if you like the visuals in my yoga teacher training, but in general, somewhere around 700 to 200 BCE. Then the Bhagavad Gita comes around 600 BCE. Again, these dates are approximate. We don't know exactly, but uh, this is a portion of this epic book called the Mahabharata, which again is, and so now this is like the dramatization of the Upanishads and the Vedas. So you got the Vedas, the origins, the first text, uh, the oldest written text by humans before any of this other stuff. And then the Upanishads came after that, the end of the Vedas, to sit near a teacher and learn these things. Then the Bhagavad Gita comes as part of this epic poem called the Mahabharata, which is massive. It's a huge, gigantic book. Uh, that I have not read myself and I've attempted a few times and it's it's real big. But the Bhagavad Gita is just a portion of that story which is essentially a conversation between Arjuna, an archer in battle, and Krishna, his charioteer, who is an incarnation of God. So this is about basically a student talking to God. What about this? What about this issue? How do we address this thing? And every chapter is like a new question, a new uh challenge faced by Arjuna who wants perspective and you can imagine there's a battlefield Arjuna comes to the battle he's ready to go he's the archer he's one of the best in the world and he looks across the battlefield and he sees his family so this dilemma comes up like there's no way I'm gonna kill my family what am I gonna do and there's this whole build-up to this fight right this is a big climactic battle and now he goes, he's ready to get it, get at that battle, but then there's his family on the other side. So 
how does he face this dilemma, right? So this is uh, the book that Gandhi carried with him throughout his entire life and referred to over and over again for guidance in his own life. So how do we face the dilemmas that arise in our lives, right? What do we do when obstacles arise and there's like, no way I'm going to go into this, right? There's no way that, right? So the, it's dramatized in the story of him having to fight in a battle against his own family. We might not have such extreme circumstances, but we do have challenges and we do have things that come up that are like, how am I going to handle this? And the book addresses that question and the similar questions as Arjuna dialogues with Krishna. You can imagine like time pauses and Arjuna has this conversation with Krishna throughout the duration of the story. And then at the end, the time unpauses and we go back to the Mahabharata. Uh, so the, the Bhagavad Gita, which is, essentially means like the poem of God, the song of God, is again, it's part of this dramatization of the lessons of the Upanishads and the Vedas. So if you like learning through stories and uh, you think that might be helpful to sort of understand it that way, this is a really good place to to maybe even start of learning yoga philosophy. And there's a translation I really like. Again, this can be very dense. There's a lot of commentaries. This book has actually been published and translated more than any other in the entire world, more than the Bible. So it's a very important text, especially in Hinduism. But there's a lot of mention of yoga. There's only over 500 uses of the word yoga in this book. And again, it's still not the postures, but it's jnana yoga, the wisdom in knowing when to use your discrimination and intellect. It's bhakti yoga, devotion in living your life in service and how to express yoga through that way to find God in service. And again, you can replace God with whatever word resonates with you. And it's about karma yoga and your, uh, the sort of cause and effect of your actions. If you do this, there's going to be a, an effect. Whatever it is, good or bad, it's not about punishing you if something, you know, it's like bad things happen to you. It's about just the sort of uh, cycle of action and reaction, cause and effect. So that's the Bhagavad Gita and the translation I really like that is more succinct and easy to just jump into is by Edward Villoen, V-I-L-J-O-E-N. Again, the, the links in my show notes uh, in the description to this episode, but it's a simplified English version and it really just distills it all down into the essence of it. it again, this is one of those books that if you pick up Pretty much any translation, it starts with a lot of uh, backstory and exposition, which is kind of confusing and difficult. But you don't need much more than what I gave in this brief intro. You know, it's part of this epic story, and there's a battle happening, and there's a dialogue in the middle of that battle. And then this this version of it just goes right into uh, bringing you right into that story. So I really like this one. Again, I'll put the links to it. Uh, again, Eknath Esperon has a great translation as well. But this is the one I really like, and it has an awesome audiobook as well. So you can check that out if you like learning that way. So the next real source key text of yoga is the Yoga Sutra. And this was written somewhere around 200 BCE, maybe as late as 200 and CE, the current era, by Patanjali. And sutra means thread. And 
a common uh, mispronunciation of this actually is to say sutras, but it's the plural of sutra is sutra. So the S is a Western uh, English sort of thing that we tend to tack on there, but it's actually yoga sutra is singular and plural. Uh, but I still slip up at times, but uh, just a nice little thing to know about the Yoga Sutra. But it's considered to be like the Bible of yoga, so it's really the foundation of what we practice today. This is where we get the eight limbs of yoga, talk about asana, but it's very brief, right? It's still not a lot of postures here, no postures here. It's it's more about uh, Kriya Yoga, your actions and your doing, the Karma Yoga sort of stuff. Again, building on the Bhagavad Gita's teachings, the Upanishad's teachings, also Jainism, which was coming up in that area of the world around the same time. Buddhism predates this a bit. Buddhism, Buddha developed the Eightfold Path. And then just about 300 years later or so, we get the Yoga Sutra, which give us the eight limbs of yoga. Coincidence? I don't think so. You know, just researching things, but, you know, people will say different things. So... Patanjali, I think, really compiled a lot of teachings at the time and said, all right, let's put this all together and let's call it yoga philosophy. Before that, there was Samkhya philosophy, which is about enumeration and quantifying things and understanding things from what we can discern with the intellect and through experience and through testing. And yoga is almost the exact same thing but it's called yoga philosophy, and now it's more emphasizing practices and your actions and your doing, and this eightfold path, or the eight limbs of yoga, different than the Buddhist eightfold path, but this is the eight limbs of yoga, which is about yamas and niyamas, which those were in Jainism before this, right? So we're picking up some pieces all around the Indian continent, putting them together, and we get the yoga philosophy. So the yamas and niyamas, the restraints, the uh, disciplines, the things that we do and don't do, such as non-harming, non-stealing, non-lying, things like that, non-grasping, right? Having tapas, contentment, surrender to God, higher power. These sort of things are examples. And then the next step from there, we have the asana, the practice of posture, of the seat that we take. And in this time, it's believed that really that just meant some sort of meditation, some sort of sitting, seated posture, right? And then eventually we get into the more meditative aspects, which again, I go into much more depth in the teacher training, but this is just an overview why it's important, because this is the text that really gives us the outline for what has become modern yoga. And it's very fascinating to me that this was this text was kind of lost for, it's believed to have been lost for about a thousand years. So around 200 BCE, uh, started to develop this yoga philosophy and build a following. But then around 500 CE, people got more interested in Tantra, which is about seeing God in everything, instead of maybe saying that there's a certain thing you've got to do, you got to do these eight steps and all this, these eight fold paths and all these things to, to get to God when it's everywhere. It's already all around us, right? You don't need to go anywhere. God is in everything. So that's more of like a Tantra path. You know, that's a very oversimplification. It's one approach to it. And then there's the Bhakti path and, you know, all this other stuff sort of sprung up and uh, this is more like mantras and kirtan and things like that became more popular. And this sort of introspective yoga practice talked about in Patanjali's text and Patanjali's teachings wasn't so popular. 
but somewhere, you know, and then around a thousand or so CE, we started to get more Hatha yogis, and then we started to get to the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which comes around the 1400s. But uh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because there is a version of the Yoga Sutra I can recommend. There's a, a great one that's sort of the classic, like, must-have, you know, if you're only going to have one. The version with by Satchidananda, that Swami Satchidananda, is just, this is uh, this guy sitting in the cover of that book. And he uh, is gives his commentary on the Yoga Sutras. And that's considered one of the more definitive commentaries on the Sutra. And uh, so that's a great one to check out. But I like this one, again, if you're more new to it, it's nice to have a little more simplified sort of explanation in this book called Inside the Yoga Sutras. It has the S's on there because so many of them do. Uh, it's by Jagannath Kadeira. I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but uh, J-A-G-A-N-A-T-H is how you say that, spell the first name. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But he gives, gives a great uh, summary of each uh, chapter of the Yoga Sutra, which is helpful, right? Because you can get real lost in this stuff. Just one sutra, again, you could spend hours, weeks, years on just that one sutra and get lost in it. Uh, but this text really gives you the overview of it. and see, You can see how it all fits together, how it all works, and make more sense of it, I think. And this is, again, what I would have found super helpful early on in my teaching. And I think it's an awesome text now. So that gives you the summary. Right? And you can kind of see how it translates into, especially in, that, in, the, in this version, in this text, you can see how it translates into modern practice. And then we really start to understand the asana and the postures when we get to the pradipika. So pradipika means light on hatha yoga in this case. And hatha, I'll say hatha, hatha kind of interchangeably. Really, it's pronounced hatha. Uh, but this means uh, light on Hatha Yoga, right? So it's written by Svatmarama around the 1400s. And this guy basically, again, compiled everything that they had learned thus far and put it all together and said, here's Hatha Yoga and here's the practices. And it combines a lot of lesser known texts that were compiled or that were written between 1000 to 1400 or so. In, in you know that space between the Yoga Sutra and the Pradipika, it's a long stretch around 1400 to 1600 years. So there was definitely some growth and expansion of teachings, and this book summarizes it all. And this is from the Nat tradition, and they believe that they're the original yogis. There's some debate on that, but nonetheless, and I can get into so many weeds about this. This is so fascinating to me. But this is again another source, uh, essential text, I believe because it codifies everything up to that point and it gives us our first posture real like it's a real posture manual for the first time in this level of detail and it describes mantra mudra and meditation and pranayama and all this stuff that's so woven into modern practice and uh, krishnamacharya mentions this and he's a really important person in yoga history that is sort of the father of modern vinyasa yoga so great text to come back to and the version that uh, I can recommend actually has notes from Krishnamacharya in it and it came out recently. This is really cool. I, I get really excited about this stuff. I think it's so fun. Uh, so this is called Hatha Yoga Pradipika, translation with notes from Krishnamacharya 
by A.G. Mohan, M-O-H-A-N. This is one of the students of Krishnamacharya. So a recent, uh, this came out uh, 2017, this came out recently. So this is an awesome text that uh, summarizes all those teachings and all that uh, wisdom that came between the sutra and this time. And it gives us a modern take on it from Krishnamacharya, who is the father of modern vinyasa yoga, who just passed away fairly recently, 1988. Uh, so he has ushered in this, these teachings to modern yoga practice. And that's, those, that's it. Those four texts I consider essential and source texts. Anything beyond that, I believe, is some sort of evolution of it, some sort of take on it. Maybe in a thousand years, people will look back on this differently. But at this point in history, where we're at in the modern era of yoga practice, these texts are the foundation of it. And uh, there's, um, there's many great books written recently, like The Heart of Yoga by Desika Char. Uh, but things like that that are more they collect uh, even in that book like there's a lot of summaries of the Yoga Sutra the Bhagavad Gita so they're going back to those source texts so if you want to know like the real foundation of it where it comes from these four books are the ones to get anything else beyond that is uh, permutation expounding on it adding to it uh, you know giving perspective adding different takes on it and um, a lot of things really it's just like <laughs> to be honest a lot of it's just like people did a lot of vinyasa yoga then they made their own style and it doesn't really uh reference these whole texts and there's that too right so it's important to know like really where it comes from and what the root of it is and this is it so i'll have the notes to that in the show notes Again, if you want to check out the workshop I'm offering to build confidence in teaching yoga, confidence in your yoga practice, go to quietmind.yoga slash confidence. And in my training, I'll help you uh, create the mindsets and have the mindset shifts that will build confidence in your practice. And that's sort of a precursor to my yoga teacher training, where I go into much greater detail and depth on all four of these texts and their relevance and how to reference them as a teacher and how to implement them into teaching classes. So that's really where it gets interesting and fun, where you can share this stuff because it's just not happening enough in drop-in classes where you go and you just go to yoga class, you're probably not gonna hear anything about the Upanishads, the Gita, maybe something about the Sutra, but that's interesting because the sutra is not even really about embodiment like we practice yoga today. So how did that happen? <laughs> so it's helpful to know really the timeline of this stuff. And I go into all the detail of that in my training, which you can check out at quietmind.yoga slash YTT. All right. If you're enjoying this podcast, leave a review, share it with a friend. And thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.